0: Welcome ironradio.org listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, I'm an exercise physiologist and a nutrition professor and a competitive bodybuilder.
1: Rob Fortress-Fortney here, former editor at MuscleMag International, former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter. And today
0: I guess we're going to start with a little bit of news before we get down to our guests. Um, Rob, did you want to go first or do you want me to share a little bit of science? First? Well,
1: I'll go first if you'd like. I would just want to I mentioned last week that I was gonna be going to the Toronto Super Show. Um and I did, and it was a good time, man. They had the big muscle insider booth there. Uh some friends working at that. Um they had everything there, the martial arts, strongman, weightlifting, powerlifting, bodybuilding, they had the whole thing. It looks like uh if this becomes like an annual thing, I can see this kind of blowing up to be the kind of the Arnold Classic of the North. It was pretty good.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, it was good. Saw lots of guys there. Uh, Ronnie Coleman was there, Sean Ray, all those guys. Um, and uh, had lunch with Dorian Yates on Saturday, which was pretty cool. I uh, hadn't seen him for quite a while. Um, yeah, so it was a good time. It was a good time. And for all the people that missed it, um, I do believe that they intend to do it again next year. So I would I would suggest that all the people who are into that type of thing, um, who, and who make their way to things like the Arnold Classic or the Expo at the Lumpier or those types of things that they, uh, do themselves a favor and shoot on down because like I say, it's got everything. I um, it was actually pretty cool. Like I said, the day that I was there, they had, uh, female weightlifters competing and, uh, they had the powerlifters doing their bench stuff. And I think the day before they had lots of, uh, strongman stuff. And yeah, it was really good. It was a good time. Nice size. It was at the Tron Convention Center, so. Right. Yeah.
0: Now, didn't you also have a bit of news? It was
1: sort of a a rumor. Well, I just, I just heard that, um, the bench specialist, um, champion, Ryan Keneally, I heard that, uh, he was sentenced to 15 years in a federal prison for, um, what I believe was, uh, steroid trafficking charges. Um, but again, I I take this as a grain of salt because I don't know. I haven't had confirmation of this, but that's what I've heard. Um, I do know that he was having some legal problems in that that he had been arrested in that arena so i don't uh, know about the sentence as being 100% accurate but like i said that's what i've been hearing so if that's oh, the case that's tough yeah that's no good okay yeah they're going to have to start having a separate pr- prison for these guys man
0: yeah just yeah. you know what it, it seems so often a lot of the guys who get uh arrested for that kind of stuff they they're not only dealing anabolics but they're they move into things like um recreational drug, ecstasy, and all manner of things. You know what I mean? But it sounds like even in the rumor, that's not the case here. But, yeah, that's serious time. Okay. Okay. Um, On the science front, I just wanted to share something. I tweeted this yesterday, so I thought I would just share it verbally here. Um, This is from ScienceDaily.com. Uh, anybody who uses fat substitutes in their uh, dieting, I just think this is interesting. The title is Fat Substitutes are Linked to Weight Gain. Rats on High Fat Diet Gained More Weight After Eating Low-Calorie Potato Chips Made with a Fat Substitute. So in other words, fat substitutes may be worse than just saying, you know, what the hell and just eating the fat in the first place. Uh, this is a study done at Purdue, Purdue University. Uh, one of the the head researchers there said, um, let's see, this challenges conventional wisdom that foods made with fat substitutes help with weight loss. Our research showed that the fat substitutes can interfere with the body's ability to regulate food intake, which can lead to inefficient use of calories and then weight gain. So, huh. wow. So, like, no, no free ride, I guess, here. Uh, just a little bit more on this here. Uh, and again, you can see this on ScienceDaily.com. for rats on a high fat diet, the group that ate both types of potato chips consumed more food, gained more weight and developed more fatty tissue than the rats that ate only the high calorie chips. So in other words, if you, if, if they're mixing it up and having some of the, you know, fat substitute chips and some of the regular chips, they're actually getting fatter than if they just ate the regular chips. Um, the The fat rats also didn't lose the extra weight even after the potato chips were removed from their diet oh boy, yeah, that's so that's interesting yeah so i, I again, this is out of Purdue University, but I am not a big fan, even as a nutritionist of what the food technologist in the food industry uh does <laughs> does to us. I mean, how many blunders can we have? you know margarine's better than real butter, oops trans fats, maybe not, you know, or artificial sweeteners are the way to go. Oops, they might cause all kinds of problems. You know, so, I mean, it's one thing after another. And now, um, I suggest people go look at that. I didn't look at exactly what fat substitute, if that's Olestra or what. Olestra is made from like a weird sucrose fatty acid blend, um, and things like that. But, uh, yeah. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, physiological things that happen when you eat fat or if you try to fool your body, some of these things might still happen or they might go awry. Salivation and hormonal secretions and gut responses, you know, in anticipation of a meal. Um, so when you try to fool that, and it might seem smart on, on the surface, oh, well, this fat has no fat calories in it. You know, it's like, well, yeah, but let's make sure this isn't, you know, Fooling with a highly complex system that likes a, a certain sense of control in the human body. So, anyway, yes. keep an eye out for fat substitutes. To read up
1: on it, people. That's right. Okay, today, our guests, we have two. Um, as you'll also probably notice, Phil's on again with us this week. He had to take care of some personal business. So, uh, Lonnie and I will just be doing this alone. But our two guests today, we have Doug Miller, who's a natural uh, bodybuilding champion, and uh, Glenn Elmers. Um, they're going to talk a little bit about um, their book, Biology for Bodybuilders, and I'm sure Doug will chime in with some of his uh bodybuilding accomplishments, and obviously we want to know a little bit more about you, Glenn. So let's start there anyway. Glenn, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, your whole interest in this, <laughs> this whole wacky world of weight training this type of thing.
2: Sure. Sure. Thanks for having us on. Uh, I'm actually not a bodybuilder, although I'm good friends with Doug and several other natural bodybuilders. I've been to a lot of shows and expedited backstage. Um, I have done a powerlifting competition, and uh, I have a strength and conditioning certification from Charles Poliquin. In fact, I was just up there a couple weekends ago for a follow-up course on anatomy for weight training. But I got into all of this fairly late in my late 30s and just got serious about six years ago when I met Doug, who was the biggest guy at my gym, and struck up a conversation. We eventually became friends, and then wrote a book together.
1: Gotcha. Now, Doug, um, why don't you again? You're you're a natural bodybuilding champion. Why don't you uh, trace back a little bit your your uh, origins in the sport and how you've arrived at what you are now as this? Uh, and tell us maybe some of the uh, accomplishments that you uh, you have to your credit.
3: Sure. And uh, thanks again, Rob and Lonnie, for uh, having us on here today to talk a little bit about our book. Um, So my story is I was always a skinny kid. Um, You know, I I was what I consider an athlete. You know, I was very active in high school, and but I just lacked the size to really, um, you know, pursue that much further. You know, I got recruited by some smaller schools in college to play soccer and to swim um, and actually also to play baseball, but um, I just didn't have the size. I was probably about 135 pounds soaking wet in high school, and that just you know that just wouldn't cut it. Luckily, you know, I was uh, at least, you know, talented enough to get me that far, but you know, certainly without the size I couldn't go any further. So, in college, uh I just needed something else since I was always involved in, you know, athletics. I had this kind of this competitive drive in me. So, uh what better way to do it than, you know, going into the gym and kind of competing against yourself every time uh in the weight room. So, uh luckily I had a couple um uh, kids on my floor freshman year who were really into weightlifting and they kind of got me started. And then, um, I was studying biochemistry and molecular biology and, um, you know, all the things I was learning in class, you know, I really started to kind of research on my own and just reading some of the science and some of your, your typical bodybuilding magazines. And I just kind of took that a little further and then it just kind of of became an obsession where I would just kind of research more and more about nutrition and, um, so then, you know, after I graduated school, I went on to, you know, working in the real world, and, you know, a couple of the older guys at a local gym kind of said, hey, you, you know, you should think about competing. You know, at this point, I was probably still only 175 pounds, but I had a pretty good frame, and so I said, sure, what the heck, and, you know, I kind of figured everything out myself, dieted it down, and, you know, I won the overall um, novice. I entered a novice uh, drug-tested competition and won the overall in that competition, and you know, kind of from there, I, I was pretty much hooked. You know, after that winning that that first show, I kind of just kind of spiraled from there. And uh, my second show, I entered the open division and won my natural pro card. And then um, I've competed for a number of years in the IFPA, which is the drug-free organization, uh, professional organization um, of the OCB. So just as you're an NPC competitor and you get your pro card to become an IFBB pro. Um, you compete in the OCB and then you become an IFPA pro once you win your pro card and um, I guess my biggest accomplishment I, I've won a, a number of pro shows but um, in 2009 I won the um, Yorton Cup uh, World Championship which was you know it was quite an accomplishment for me there were 39 other pros from you know all around the world and it was you know it was really uh, you know I died at 25 weeks for that show and um, I think I came in at my all-time best. So, um, you know, after that, you know, Glenn kind of just said, you know, hey, look, you've accomplished all of this. Why not put this down? You know, put the pen to paper and uh, kind of write a little bit about, um, you know, my my training, my methods, my lifestyle habits, you know, that I used to become this successful natural bodybuilder. And, you know, at the same time, there's a lot of a lot of your your average person really doesn't understand you know the biochemical and biomechanical processes of building muscle and what's actually going on and so we tried to take a simplified approach to this and really explain to people what's going on in your body and then you know you know take from that you know how to do certain things to optimize uh, muscle gain so although the title says biology for bodybuilders it's really not for bodybuilders it's it's really for everyone men, women, anybody who just wants to look good It's kind of what is going on in your body as your strength training and you know kind of how to optimize um everything you do to you know kind of look your best
1: um so right, in a nutshell
3: right. that's that's my story
1: and what what is it exactly that kept you on the the path of being a natural bodybuilder um and not pursuing the well other... i mean
3: a, I mean a couple things you know. Back in the age of, you know, Mark McGuire, you know, I I certainly, there was something appealing to um, people blowing up, you know, and taking steroids and stuff. And, you know, the thought has crossed my mind before, but at the same time, you know, I think to myself, I was like, one, it's against the law. And so, you know, I, that was certainly a big issue for me. I wouldn't want to do that. Um, you know I work in a corporate world or I, I used to work a little bit more in a corporate world, and you know I, I had too much on the line to risk it and you know at the same time, you know I was making great gains when I started out completely natural, and you know as you kind of progress, you know it 's harder and harder to make gains, but i kind of saw that as a challenge, and you know that 's what I love about it it's you know there's it really is a marathon it 's not a sprint, and it 's all about um, you know, kind of pushing yourself to the limit, you know, with kind of no shortcuts. You know, the other unappealing thing for steroids for me is, you know, I want to look good year round, you know, when I'm, regardless of whether, you know, I'm training for a show or just, you know, trying to get bigger. And, you know, I've, I've seen a number of guys in my local gym and just, they fluctuate too much when they're on and they're off. And, you know, really they end up, you know, looking like crap more than, more than not. So for me, um, you know, it's, there's a legality issue, there's challenging myself issue, and really, you know, to be honest, you know, I'm in this for the long haul, and I didn't really want to risk my health and, you know, fluctuating my physique so much, so um, that those are really the main reasons why I stayed natural.
1: Right. And for people out there who are listening, um, certainly go and check out Doug Miller's website. It's uh, DougMillerPro.com. Um, it, it, can can uh, people find the book here as well?
3: Yeah, sure. They can. Well, there's a. There should be a link on there to our Amazon. So if anybody just can go to Amazon.com, where I'm sure everyone gets their books and CDs and things like that, um, you can just go to Amazon.com and just do a search for Biology for Bodybuilders, and um, it should pop right up.
1: Right. And uh, we've got a gl- Facebook page too. Oh yeah, I was going to sure. say, Glenn, do you have a website or anything else? Yeah, give give us all those.
2: Just just go to Facebook and 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 put it in Biology for Bodybuilders, and it'll come right
1: up. Okay. Yep. Okay. Um, okay. So, so you were saying, Glenn, that you met Doug just in the gym because you said he was the biggest guy in your gym, um, and you decided to kind of, uh, after some time, uh, collaborate on the on this book. Uh right, tell, right. Us, tell us a little bit about uh, the road to to you know take that on and get that done, and you know um, tell us some stories about that.
2: Sure. Sure. So eventually, Doug and I, you know, after our Chatting for a little bit, we started, you know, spotting each other, and then working out together, and then becoming friends. And so, actually, I, inter- I
3: should interrupt here first. So, um Glenn was at first what I would call a
2: Dingleberry—the
3: <laughs> <laughs> guys in the gym that are doing everything completely
2: wrong—and
3: nice. you know, you know, where the just kind of—I could tell he was—he, you know, he, I would see him every night. So he really wanted it. You could tell he was trying to make a lifestyle change. And so we always joke around, you know, I call him a dingleberry still to this day, but, you know, cause he's come such a long way. And so it kind of fun, it's kind of funny that, um, you know, he has come so far and, you know, he's, you know, become a successful power lifter. But, you know, he started off just where, you know, everyone else does in the gym. And, uh, I don't know, Glenn, you can tell some more stories about
2: that. <laughs> yeah, I sort of looked out, uh, in finding Doug just at a local golds here right in my neighborhood. So, um but after training for a while, he would always, you know, explain, uh, you know, why do you want to take this kind of carbohydrate before your workout versus this one after? And, you know, you got to have enough sleep because otherwise it elevates your cortisol levels, which makes it harder to lose fat. And it, but all kinds of stuff that I had never heard anywhere or heard anywhere. And after a while, I'm just thinking, wow, this guy, not just big and strong and looks good, but he actually really knows a lot. And it, after the Jordan Cup, it, it just occurred to me that there was really a lot we could, we could get out there to educate people and, Combine it with some basic science, and that was the genesis for the book.
1: Right, right. Um, how long did it take you guys to uh, complete this thing?
2: <laughs>
3: Two
1: years. Yeah, a few years. It a, yeah. It, it, yeah,
3: it was a long process. You know, at first, you know, I I, I really didn't think he was even serious about doing it. And then, um, you know, we started researching a little bit more, and, and you know, there's so many so many issues. The topics in the book changed, you know, a number of times, and. You know, it really was quite an effort and, you know, Glenn really spearheaded that effort and then we brought on,
2: um, you know... Okay, we should mention Kevin. Uh, our third co-author is uh, Dr. Kevin Fontaine, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He was going to be on the show, but his wife is having uh, minor surgery, but right. we brought him on because Doug is the athlete, very knowledgeable, but he has a full-time day job, trains people and has the store. Uh, uh, I'm a writer, which is what I bring to this project, but we really wanted someone with some professional uh, scientific background, and so that's we brought Kevin in as our third co-author to just give some some good credibility and, and, and check all our facts and, and get the science right.
0: right. Right, right. Well, you know, I don't want to get into the topic of the day because I have a question specifically uh, about the, the book and, and sort of the topic, but if I can just... Um, take a step back for just for a second. Doug, I'm curious about, you know, if you can refresh or offer listeners some details about why you chose your particular natural league or conference, because I think there's some confusion about, there seem to be several uh, out there, both amateur and professional, and I just thought maybe you could share a little bit about your choices and preferences there.
3: Yeah, sure, absolutely, because that, that was a major decision for me. Um, I mean, really, generally there are I don't know, there's probably, I mean, there's there's dozens, but there's really, you know, three, four, or five major um, leagues out there. So there's the one that I compete in, which is the OCB and the IFPA, that's the Amateur and Pro Division. Then there's the INBF and the WNBF. Um, there's the NGA, there's the USBF, there's the INBA, PNBA, and there's Muscle Mania um i think off the top of my head those are probably the main ones and
0: wow you know um, not including natural npc uh, exactly, events well. exactly
3: <laughs> I- exactly um so so npc you know I, I i should state that i don't at some point you know i want to do the team universe because that is a very um you know, it, it's it, there's a lot of elite athletes that compete there, and there's supposed to be the best of the best. So, um, you know, at some point, I, I really want to do the Team Universe. You know, maybe even next year, we'll see. Um, but I originally started off with the OCB because, um, I, to me, really, there was only the OCB and the and in the I, um, INBF, and the reason being is they were both very stringent in their drug testing. Um, you know, full urinalysis and, and, you know, polygraphs, and it seemed to be very strict. Now, the reason why I I didn't go with the IMBF IMBF and the WMBF, and, again, I have lots of friends and, you know, people that I'm close to that compete there, um, they are a little more controlling of their athletes. So um, as an IFPA pro, you know, I pretty much can appear in, you know, any magazine I want. I can compete anywhere I want. If I decided to go on to, um, you know, become a WMBF pro, um, I pretty much am stuck there and I can't compete in other organizations. So I wanted that freedom of the IFPA. Um, you know, at some point, you know, maybe I'll move on and like I said, maybe I'll move on to the 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 MPC um, or the WMBF, you know, who knows, but... Um, you know that that was my initial. I didn't want to be kind of pigeonholed into one organization when I first started out.
1: Okay, right. Okay. Do you want to shoot over to the topic of the day, then, Lonnie? Yeah. Let's let,
0: let's take a brief break for some messages, uh, and when we come back, we'll uh, tackle this topic of the day, fairly broad topic, which is um, biology for bodybuilders, uh, and of course, we'll talk about. Um, the, the book from uh, Doug and Glenn et al. A little bit more at that time. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow... Uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. Uh, There's currently one running on tnation.com about how to decide when to do more exercise versus diet when you're trying to lean out during those times of the year so lots of ways to um, interact uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on iron radio thanks So our topic of the day as we talk with Doug and Glenn – and I'm sorry, who is the other co-author on your book?
2: His name is uh, Professor Kevin Fontaine from Johns Hopkins Medical School.
0: Okay. Uh, They have a um, book – and the book is actually entitled "Body uh, Biology for Bodybuilders or – Correct, correct. Okay. Well – I think my first question then is because we've had a lot of professors on the show and physicians and coaches and people like that. And my first question is that biology is just so very broad. I mean, uh, Rob and I, we've talked about everything from changing the shape of a muscle. So, you know, that's anatomy. We've talked mm-hmm. about doping, which is endocrinology. We've talked about nutrition and digestion, which is physiology. So how do you address such a broad broad topic like this especially for a lay audience
3: yeah i mean i I think our title we struggled with our title for a very long time um and and you're exactly right there are so many different in, in terms of just you know gaining muscle and just training to you know look the best you can there's so many systems involved and you know we really wanted to cover everything so um biology for bodybuilders really i think a, probably a more accurate title could be uh biochemistry for bodybuilders but we didn't want to turn people off with those big fancy fancy words oh
2: that hurts me personally <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean I, that's kind of really my background too is biochemistry and molecular biology, but we really touch on you know a lot of those you know uh different things you know we touch on the muscle cell exactly you know what what are your muscles and you know what happens when you when you weight train we touch on the nervous system and how integral that is in you know the whole muscle building process. We touch a little bit on the hormones and endocrine system. Um, and then we also you know we touch we have some kind of anecdotal stuff and some you know personal stuff of mine in the book as well and there's also you know a discussion of genetics and uh, really, this is where um, Professor Fontaine really helped us out in this in this aspect, which I think is one of the most interesting parts of the book uh, talking about epigenetics and how kind of um, you're not really stuck and you're not really limited completely by your genetics there's so many factors that you can change, and you can even cha- change the way um, your kind of genes are expressed with your offspring um, just by giving the lifestyle choices that you make today. Holy um,
0: histones. You know what? Let me point readers or listeners to that if you type epigenetics in or epigenetics documentary into YouTube, you can find some fantastic uh, movies, uh, from, I believe it's Nova or, you know, it's a legitimate educational source about epigenetics, which literally just means upon the genes. And, and they, they go on about how genes get turned on and off, but they also give lots of examples and they link it to nutrition. So just a little public service message, I guess there, go check out YouTube, type in, dig around for epigenetics. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll put some of those links on the iron radio YouTube page. So people can check it out, but right on. I'm glad you're discussing
3: that. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't want to, I'm certainly by no means an expert there. And like I said, that's where uh, Professor Fontaine really, you know, contributed to this book. But, you know, even in this process of researching for this book, you know, I found some of those documentaries that you talked about, and there's some really interesting stuff where they follow, you know, identical twins who, you know, really have the same genetic makeup and talk about all the environmental factors that change the way genes are expressed um and how that can change you know pretty much everything about you your physique and all these other things and you know it, a big part of that environment is is nutrition as you as you said
0: right yeah N- nutrients can actually affect transcription factors and the way genes get turned on and off uh in general if you look at work from people like Claude Bouchard who's a Canadian researcher from Quebec he'll point out that body fat and body fat distributions for example um somewhere around 25 to 40% genetic. And I, when I teach a class like medical aspects of exercise, I actually talk about that. I call it the the pie graph of hope because what it really is is it says that more than 50% of everything that goes into your phenotype, you know, your physical being is your lifestyle basically, not just your genes. So, I make no mistake, Rob and I have talked about this before. There's always the the poor dude who, you know, Even in the face of anabolic steroids and perfect diet, he just doesn't look very good. Uh, But at the same time, yeah, most of the picture is lifestyle. And uh, although genetics are hugely important for everything from shape to, you know, uh, how well you diet to how well you resist drug side effects, we've talked about all these kinds of things before, but it's always going to be a little bit smaller player than that pie graph of hope that shows you know maybe 60 percent of the picture or a good part of the picture are more things like uh lifestyle and cultural and the way you live right so cool
2: yeah there is still that there is still that little bit of element of genetics in there what weren't you just talking the other day about people who can't get their soleus to grow no matter what they do yeah i'm one of those
0: (laughs) oh right yeah the calf calf is one of those muscles that's uh I don't know. Yeah. You see some guys, I I was behind a guy just a couple of days ago. It's funny you brought that up. He was a heavier guy and you might say, well, he's heavy. So he's pushing himself around, but that's not always true because all heavy guys, all basically over fat guys do not have huge calves automatically. But this guy had Christmas hams hanging off the back (laughs) of his legs. And I'm just like, that's just so genetic. I mean, they were rock hard. They were huge, even though the rest of him was very soft and overweight. He was obese, Wow. You know, and I know what you're saying. And, and, and there's other people, too. They can train their calves, you know, till they're ready to shoot themselves and just not, not a lot happening there.
1: Yeah, so, I was I mean, actually – sorry, I was just going to say it, but if we're on the con- topic of calves, I was at the pro show, like I said, and uh, that Ben Pakulski guy, I think that's his name. He's a Canadian uh, kind of uh, new pro. He was walking around, and he, he seriously has the largest calves of any human being I've ever seen in my life. Wow. And that's saying a lot, by the way. I've seen some pretty big freaking calves. This guy's got.
2: I've heard of this guy named Eric Fankhauser.
1: Um, Actually, I do know the name, yeah.
2: Yeah, he's got some of the biggest calves you'll ever see. It's
1: amazing. Wow. Yeah. Oh, uh, so
2: the, just the uh, point I wanted to make in the book, I'm sorry, sort of regret that I mentioned that because the whole point of what we say about genetics is that it's not really a limiting factor for most people. Uh, the fact is, you really can. Uh, accomplish extraordinary things if you put your mind to it. And so we actually throw in a little picture of Doug when he was 18 about as skinny as a bean pole and contrast that with the cover on the book where he's 200 plus pounds just to show people that you know don't use genetics as an excuse to feel that you're limited. Yeah. Right. I mean,
0: I, you know, I, and even the shape of a muscle like Rob and I have talked about there there are supportive muscles, other soft tissue you know, surrounding a sister muscles that you can develop and you can have, for example, if you have a short biceps, you can do an awful lot with the brachialis to make it look, your upper arm look really good. You know what I mean? So I mean, and same thing with soleus versus gastroc for your calves or, or whatever. So yeah, point well taken.
3: I mean, you know, everyone does have that different genetic makeup. Everyone does have different distributions of the, the, the muscle, fi- different types of muscle fibers. And, you know, I think one of the other big points in in the book and that we talk about and we give some, you know, good examples is that, you know, because of these different makeups, you know, everyone responds differently to different things. And, you know, it's really key to figure out what is working for you. You know, I train people all over the world. And you know we have you know dozens and dozens of clients, and you know there is definitely not one you know right way of of training and and dieting, and it's one of those things that you really need to experiment with until you really find what's working. You know, for me, for example, um, you know I'm a huge believer in high volume, and generally I find that most of my clients respond really well to it, as opposed to something like a max OT or more like HIT training. Um, however, you know, in terms of rep range, you know, where most people are training for, um, you know, you're trying to put on some size, I mean, they're training in the 6 to 12 rep range. Uh, for me, I mean, generally, my training really never goes below 12 reps. I mean, sometimes I go, um, you know, really low on some deadlifts occasionally and some squats, but um, most of my training is in the 20, uh, 12 to 20 rep range, which people think is crazy. Um, now it, it's not lightweight. I'm just—it's just the way I, I'm pushing myself. But um, that's how I've really trained myself, and I found that um, you know my high-end lifts, you know my very you know max-out lifts are not very strong. However, I can do a pretty decent amount of weight for a lot of reps, and you know I think I really respond to that. And certainly not everyone's like that, and it has a lot to do with my genetic makeup and my you know the way you know my. Uh, muscle fiber distribution but um so uh, people really need to kind of experiment with this and don't don't be afraid of like i have to be in the six to you know the six to ten rep range to put on muscle um you know you really got to kind of think outside of that and figure out what's going to work specifically for me for
0: you there's nothing set in stone right so i actually have a i'm sorry go ahead
1: rob no i was going to say yeah because glenn you emailed me and we're we're, um, mentioning some of the uh volume yeah. and reps in that 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 doug does i think he said he was deadlifting a instead of i can't remember what you said um
2: yeah i think well we put this is just a pr that doug said a few weeks ago and i uh, videotaped it. you can find it on youtube d was uh four or five by 30 right deadlifting yeah so, yeah yeah so four plates on each side for 30 reps straight just going and going it was pretty impressive
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's nutty
0: Actually, yeah. Before I ask my question, uh, that's something that's always impressed me about Rob, actually. So I I could see you guys talking about that because when when I watch Rob do something like 10 sets of 10 with 315 or something just to be a nut, (laughs) you know, that's what's always impressed me is Rob's ability to brutalize himself with, you know, moderately heavy to heavy weights for that kind of volume because – there's if I, if I did 10 sets of 10 with 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 315 I would be dead. I would die by the end. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. But we love terminal volume training. Well, this brings me to my question then. I I had scribbled this down earlier and you're already starting to address it. And that's that you know, nutrigenetics and performance genetics. In fact, I think performance genetics is the actual study of performance genetics uh is Catching up with the nutrigenetics thing, but these things in nutrigenomics, they really show individual differences are just really important on key points. And I just, I, I was curious that when you're writing this book, especially Doug from the athlete's perspective, I mean, how do you address the fact that, I mean, I'm sure you're not assuming that what works for you works for other people. Uh, so, how do you deal with that breadth in a book? How do you give advice knowing that the genetic spectrum is so huge and what works for you, even if it works fantastically, it could fail badly with someone else? I mean, how do you tackle that?
3: Sure, that's, I mean, it's definitely, it's a good point and that's something that we should certainly uh, wrestled with for a while, I think you know first and foremost you know uh, we wanted to write when we decided to write this book, you know we went back and forth on how it was going to be written, but we we kind of settled on writing it from my perspective um, we had you know I get people pretty much every day emailing me about certain things, and um, you know you know what do you do for this, what do you do for that and so you know Sometimes I kind of get get a little tired answering those questions. I always answer them, but you know. So I wanted some place of putting down, you know, um, you know what? What do I do? What What works for me? But it was very important, like you said, to make it very clear that just because it works for me doesn't mean it works for you. And I think we strike we we struck a good balance there. I mean, Glenn, maybe you can talk a little bit about it because Glenn's dieting approach is completely different from mine. Um, So, Glenn, I don't know if you want to mention something about that.
2: one thing we do is we talk about training principles like intensity and volume and variety, but we stay away from, from programming. We don't really program people's workouts. We we say experiment with sets and reps and, and you know, dog crap and German volume training and just see what works for you, and then we just explain what Doug does just because people are curious. Uh, what we also do is we're fairly open about where the three of us have sometimes disagreed, and uh, some of the people who reviewed the book really actually sort of like that aspect uh Kevin and I are both paleo, whereas uh Doug likes his oats and follows a more traditional uh bodybuilding diet. And we just tell that to people up front to look and say, you know, try different different things and see what works for you.
3: I mean Glenn, you, Glenn tried the whole bodybuilder eat like a bodybuilder type of thing. So just your your brown rice and your veggies, you know, and the good complex carbs and, you know, meat and whey protein and all these different things and you know, he found that that, you know, really didn't work for him. And now, I mean, he's eating, you know, a ton of saturated fat. You know, he's eating whole <laughs> carcasses of animals and all sorts of crazy stuff. And, you know, he is lighter and leaner than he's ever been, but he's
2: just as strong or stronger.
3: Are so, you I mean,
0: lower I mean, carb
2: then? I'm lower carb just by default, not by intention. I mean, I still have uh, sweet potato before and after. Uh, but because I don't eat any grain, so no pasta, no rice, no bread, It's it just works out to be lower carb. But I'm not keto or anything like that.
0: Right. Well, listening to you guys talk, it sounds to me like one of the reasons Doug does well on the brown rice and more of the you know, low glycemic or starchy carbs, traditional bodybuilder carbs or whatever, is because of the amount of volume that he puts into his training. I mean, you know what I mean? I, 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 people who go in the gym and they do three sets of triples – in the bench press or something, they're not exactly going to exhaust their glycogen stores. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of it has to do with training style too.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that whenever Glenn, you know, I guess Glenn will train a little bit lower volume than I do. So whenever we train together, I'm like, I'm like, homie, you better bring your sweet potato today because, you know, we're going all out. And so, you know, it, it, it is... The replenishing that glycogen, and um, you know, I'm a big fan of the insulin spike post-workout. Um, it is really crucial when you're training with that high
1: volume. Right.
0: So, Rob, any thoughts from you?
1: Not really. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, uh, yeah, as Long as I was saying earlier, I, I certainly. Uh, uh, prescribed to, you know, what Doug's saying about some of the volume and stuff like that. I certainly found when I was a bodybuilder that, uh, you know, that seemed to be something that was vastly important, you know, just to, uh, beat the muscle in, into submission kind of like that because it's one of those things. And, you know, it kind of goes to that whole kind of saying that you hear some cheese balls saying about, you know, uh, you know, you gotta force it to grow and, you know, it's give it no other choice. But in, in a way that's true. Um, but yeah, I mean that. It,
3: that absolutely is true. I mean, you gotta get it to adapt. I mean, if you're always comfortable in what you're doing and you're not really pushing into that, if you're not really crushing it, as I would say, you know, you're, you're really not gonna, your body's not gonna adapt. And that's what. Right. You're-
0: but you know what? I think there's a fine line there because mm-hmm. if you're talking about the overload principle, you know, or like you're talking about sort of what some might call the principle of diminishing returns, you know, as somebody mm-hmm. becomes more advanced. I mean, overload is one thing, but what are your thoughts on exhaustive training do you go balls to the wall and do you work out until you're exhausted or do you are you one of these guys who tries to pull back on the reins and leave a few percent after a training session?
3: Well that's another really good question. Um, for me you know I used to incorporate a lot of forced reps into my training and you know one of the things that I've done in recent years and I've really it's really helped me is like you said leaving maybe just a touch in the tank, On individual sets, you know, I'm I'm going pretty close to failure on individual sets, but I, you know, I think I think a bigger thing is totally frying my nervous system. Um, You know, when I train super high volume for an extended period of time, um, you know, I, I my muscles adapt. I feel like you know my strength doesn't really suffer, but I just feel you know completely wiped. So I do need to be careful of you know totally, you know, blasting myself where I, my my nervous system can't recover. You know, my diet is pretty much completely on point and my supplements and everything like that. So, I, you know, I really feel that the human body can do a lot more than the average joe thinks it can do in terms of, you know, recovery and pushing itself, but there's certainly there's certainly points where, you know, you can totally fry yourself out and yeah. at that point you you got to be careful and you just got to you got to learn your body. You know, you got to be able to push it to that limit, but right. also know when you know you're
0: going to cross that line. That's what sort of irks me sometimes when I hear a, a like a different, uh, you know, a bodybuilder turned nutrition guru or somebody who uses a lot of anabolics or something, and he starts giving advice like, you know, all oh, over training's a myth and it's just under eating, or they say <laughs> stuff like that, and that just makes the physiology physiologist in me sort of cringe because. You know, it's like, listen, dude, you're able to eat nothing (laughs) and train like an animal uh, and not fry yourself because, you know, you're on a gram and a half of enanthate or something like that. And, you know, that's not going to be the case for the skinny kid, ectomorphic kid. You know, one of the things that immediately you just made me think about was, Years ago, when I was competing for a body, uh, preparing for a bodybuilding show, I drove myself into full-blown overtraining syndrome. And I haven't talked about this on the podcast much, but this is mono-like symptoms, ruined, and it's, it's actually defined in such a case that, you know, motivation is almost zero, your nervous system is fried, you're getting upper respiratory tract infections, and even two to eight weeks, up to eight weeks off doesn't fix your situation. And, I mean, I think thats it's important for people to realize that if you can't pull back on the reins, and that's always been a problem with me, is how do you not go off in the gym? You know, when I've got some heavy metal in my ears and a bar in my hands, it's really hard to walk away with 10% in the tank, right? So, anyway, so I, point A, overtraining is real, but I know a lot of people use it as an excuse too. So I mean, it's only the psychotic people, I think, who, who overdo it to that extent. Or people who might be genetically prone. I'm tended to be a smaller, thinner type person, you know, compared to Rob, who's, I always joke, is built like a refrigerator, you know, and can just punish himself. Well, gee, um, well you know what? <laughs> you're 300 pounds, you're as, you're, you're as thick at, you know, across your shoulders as you are across your thighs. You're just a giant rectangle
1: to me, cute (laughs) to me. (laughs) Sounds sounds aesthetically pleasing.
0: Well but you know (laughs) you're massive. You're a massive block and I'm not built like that. So you know when I train with people like you I gotta be careful and realize that, you know, I'm I'm frying myself. But the other thing was I was going to ask Doug is then how do you leave that few percent in the gym? I mean Don't you have that warrior urge
3: to <laughs> so let me cl- let me clarify a little bit there, so I'm training right up to failure, and I just uh, you know I really eliminated those those force reps, and and that has helped a lot now um I really do push it to where uh, you know my philosophy and my approach and what I found it was worked for me is if you're walking into the gym, there's no sense in going in there and doing you know uh, you know just a you know, 30% of the weight that you usually do, you know, I don't really believe in back-off workouts. What I believe in is going into the gym and absolutely crushing it, but then giving yourself time outside of the gym with the proper nutrition to recover. So I'm all about if you're going into the gym, push it to the limit, but make sure you're giving those body parts enough time to recover um, before you hit it again. And if you do that, your body will, you know, your body will recover. So it's a little bit different from what what you were saying there. You know, I, I you know, and, you know, it, maybe it's held me back a little bit. You know, to my fault, you know, I really have trouble leaving some in the tank. And, you know, usually I don't, but at the same time I'm also really good about, you know, developing my training splits and my nutrition where I do give, you know, each body part plenty of rest and nutrients so that it does recover and that I am getting stronger, you know you know, quite often.
0: Okay, you know, so let's let's it. dig into that a little bit for listeners then. Can you just give us real briefly, like a rundown of how many sets for chest or back or for arms, for example, mm-hmm. that you might do, and then how many days you give yourself before you retrain some okay. of these body parts?
3: So, I mean, I, I change up my splits often, but I, you know, I oftentimes go back to one of my favorite splits where it's one body part a day. So it'll be Sunday, you know, you train quads and calves. Monday, you're training chest. Tuesday, you're training back. Wednesday, you're training arms. Thursday, you're training hamstrings and calves. I always like to split up my legs. Um, and then Friday, you're training shoulders. Saturday, you know, you know, you're completely off. And by doing that, you know, I find that I really do recover well. And, you know, I'm giving each of those body parts, although, you know, you are training them as secondary muscles and some of the other things. Um, you do give yourself a lot of time to recover. So for chest, um, I train with a lot of sets, but there's also in there a lot of warm-up sets. Um, So let's say I start out with, I might do five exercises for chest. You know, the first exercise, it might take me, if we're doing dumbbells, it may take me five sets of nowhere near failure to, you know, to warm up to get me ready to, you know, tackle the 150s or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then I'll do two work sets, you know, all out, pretty much pushing right to failure and then maybe throw in a drop set. Then I go into my second exercise. My second exercise, I'm already kind of warm, but because it's a separate, you know, a, a, a different type of movement, I like to do one to two sets of kind of let's just kind of get the motion down before I really push it to failure. And then I'll do maybe two more work sets there. Then I go to my third, fourth, and fifth exercise. I might do, again, you know, uh three sets where, you know, one to two of those are kind of just, you know, still moving decent weight but not going to failure, and then on the last one I'll go to failure. So for chest, if I do, you know, it's a different, you know, I, I'm doing a lot of sets, but really I'm only doing, let's see, two, four, six, eight, you know, eight to ten sets to failure, which, I mean, it's still a decent amount. Um, and then there's maybe another, you know, twice that in terms of total sets.
0: Okay. So for like a chest or a back, yeah, it it made me think about especially when you were saying one body part per session. Yeah. You're almost bound to be spending 20 or 25 sets on each body part. Oh, but yeah. like you said, but not all of those are heavy work sets.
3: That's right. And you know, so for yesterday we did back and you know, we trained with deadlifts. So it took me um you know, we warmed up for 135, 225, 315, 405, 495. So I did five warm-up sets, nowhere close to failure. And then I decided I wanted to go all out with 545. So I did 10 reps with that. Um, and then I wanted to do one more set with, you know, 585 and, and did a work set with that. And that was it for deadlifts. So really there was two work sets there, although it just takes a while to kind of warm up into that. Second exercise, we went into a, uh old-school on the, the corner t bar row. We did maybe... Two sets of kind of you know kind of getting used to the weight twenty reps each, and then I did two work sets kind of all out um, we moved on to some rack deads uh, superset with some shrugs, we did three work sets you know three sets there, then we moved on to um, some uh, old school okay. pullover, mach- pullover machine, um, and then we finish with some, you know, other another type of machine pull down. And on those machine pull downs, it's really, you know, the first couple exercises, I'm really taking my time so that I, you know, recover and am able to crush each set. And then as we move through the workout, we always kind of speed up in our rest you know our rest kind of goes down and at that point I'm training a little bit more for you know kind of you know flood the the muscles with uh with blood and really get a nice pump.
0: Yeah. Okay, well maybe last point that we'll be able to cover here. I just wanted to touch on can you and I know I'm trying to force you in a way to give me a total number of sets and there's a lot more to it than that <laughs> or, and I'm going to do the same thing with nutrition. Give me like um a calorie value like for off-season versus dieting, for example, with maybe some, you know, grams of protein, carbon, fat or a typical day of what you might eat, anything like that. So sure. so listeners can, you know, mesh that with that type of training.
2: Sure.
3: I mean, I'm probably, when I'm training with weights, I'm probably 3,500 to 3,900, 4,000 calories a day. Um, generally in about the 40, 40, 20, um Breakdown of percent of calories from each macronutrient. You know. Okay, some, just
0: back up. Forty, forty, twenty, and then just tell everybody just just be clear for which is which. That's protein, carbs, protein, fat.
3: Protein, carbs, fat, and yeah. you know generally, you know my protein. I've actually in recent years have you know lowered that a little bit. I mean I used to be eating over four hundred grams a day, and I don't think I need that much anymore. So you know I'm probably around I don't know three fifty. Um, and you know, so sometimes my, you know, my carbohydrate intake is more than 40% of my total carbs, um, or my total calories. So, about 350 grams of protein, um, you know, about 20% um, of my calories come from fat and the rest are coming from carbs. Um, you know, all healthy, you know, carbs. I don't, I don't eat crap. I don't really go out. Um, I eat a whole bunch of junk. Um. And then when I'm dieting, you know, my diet starts that high. You know, I, I, I'm i a big fan of carb cycling to kind of give the metabolism a nice little spike and keep your body guessing. Um, so my high days will start out, you know, at that, you know, well, well over 400 grams of carbs a day. But, and my low days are, you know, maybe at around, you know, 300 grams of carbs. And then as I move through a 20-week diet, I, I'm a big fan of dieting long and slow, especially if you're doing it naturally you know, your body's very catabolic, so you really need to, you know, do it nice and slowly. Um, You know, I just slowly pull those numbers down, and then towards the end of a 20-week diet, my calorie levels are probably at, you know, maybe my, you know, maybe 22 to 2600 calories, depending on the day, as opposed to, you know, 35 to 4,000 calories a day.
0: Right. That's still a moderate amount. So you're doing lots of, maybe just quickly describe what you do for uh, any kind of aerobic activity or cardio or anything like that.
3: Sure. You know, I find that HIT cardio works well for a lot of people for me because I'm so intense in the gym and, you know, always pushing it right to that limit. I don't want to spend that intensity um, where you, when you, especially when you're dieting, you only have a limited amount. I don't want to spend that on cardio. So for me, in recent years, I found that just low intensity steady state. Um, maybe you know, after wake up in the morning, throw some BCAs down, have a scoop of whey protein. I'm not a fan of you know fasted cardio at all, um, and then go hit hit some you know maybe half an hour to 45 minutes, maybe even up to an hour of just walking on an incline, um, just squeezing the glutes and hands as you walk um, you know, kind of a low intensity, but you're still sweating. You're still working somewhat hard. And, and you know, that cardio really depends on where I am in my diet. You know, I might start off, I'm doing that once a week. And then towards the end, maybe I'm doing that six days a week. Um, so it's, again, it's one of those things that it kind of, all of that gets adjusted as I move through time.
0: Right. How old are you, Doug? I'm 31. Okay. Yeah, in fact we were talking to Dr. Cotter, Josh Cotter last week about this too. And honestly, your approach to contest prep is almost exactly what I do. 20, 25 week diets. Mm-hmm. Uh what I call non-panting cardio in yes. a semi-fasted state, meaning just a little bit of protein or leucine or something. Exactly. You know. Uh and for the same reason, I I I think you're a cross trainer and I think Rob can probably concur if you're spending a ton of intensity on your cardio. What the hell are you doing? I don't think you're a bodybuilder at that point. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So uh yeah, that's that's kind of fun to hear, I guess, but partly because I agreed. <laughs> yeah. But uh yeah, oh, and you know what as we just start to wrap things up, I wanted to point out you you said you eat a very high protein diet and I I didn't mention this in the news, but this weekend is the ISSN meeting that we've been advertising uh, on Iron Radio for a year, and uh, I'm going to give a big talk on high-protein diets, uh, actually. Um, but there's a lot of good information there, too. I'm actually going to share some data about what high-protein diets really do to bone and kidney physiology, uh, which is not much, as it turns out, despite what you heard. So um, anyway, uh, the ISSN meeting is in Las Vegas this weekend. Uh, you've been hearing Dr. Joey Antonio give uh, his little advertising blurb at the end of our episodes, and the time is nigh. So anyway,
1: any last words from you, Rob? Not really. I think it was been a good show and uh, certainly got a lot more out of it than I was even hoping, so good stuff, man. And just so people know, again, um, you can go to the Facebook page and look for uh, Bology for Bodybuilders, the book, um, and you can go to uh, Doug Miller's website, um, which is again, Doug. Say it
3: again. Doug Miller. dot com. Right, and then right. you can pick up the book anywhere. On uh, just go to Amazon and just search for "Biology for Bodybuilders," and you can pick it up there.
0: Right. Cool. cool. I wanted to thank you guys for being on. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, thanks so thank
3: much you for having us. us.
0: Yeah. It's it's fun to get the different pers- perspectives out there and uh, you know just spread as much education as possible. I like your combination of athlete plus writer. Plus, uh, you know, science nerd. It's it's a winning mix. It's a winning formula. And it's kind of what we do here on Iron Radio, right? Rob's a journalist. I'm a nutrition and physiology professor. And, you know, Phil competes every day in some kind of strength
1: event.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Despite his uh, many injuries and whatnot, which is part of the reason he's not with us today. But anyway, thanks again for being on. All right. Thanks very much, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members so for four dollars a month which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community and we'd like to also announce that with our 100th episode we're going to offer that caption contest on our facebook uh, listeners page so go to facebook type in iron radio Look at the pictures of Phil and Rob. We're going to have a picture of each of these guys. And caption the photo. It should be fun. So again, go to Facebook, Iron Radio listeners page, and tell us what Rob and Phil are doing, at least in your head. Should be fun. And you'll win a prize if we choose you as the funniest caption. Thanks. For the best sports nutrition information on the planet, make plans to attend the 8th Annual ISSN Conference and Expo, June 23rd to 25th. 2011 at the Westin Las Vegas Hotel, Casino, and Spa. We'll have the latest on creatine, beta-alanine, protein, nutrient timing, and much,
3: much more. So, for more information, go to www.vissn.org.
0: The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your position. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.